There have been, throughout the history of the mustache, few men who have worn one so successfully that you actually prefer them with it than without it. Tom Selleck comes easily to mind. Charlie Chaplin, and by extension, Adolf Hitler, would be borderline unrecognizable without the little tramp stamp on his upper lip. Groucho Marx, since his signature shoe shine soup strainer, is fairly indistinguishable from Zeppo. For the likes of the Time to Make the Donuts guy and the Micro Machine Man, even a sorry little caterpillar was enough to stand out from the crowd. LeVar Burton went through a mustache phase during his reading Rainbow Days, and those were some of the best episodes that ever aired. While I've seen photographic evidence that Dan can rock a fabulous French tickler, my own mustache is a bit too sad and Irish to stand on its own merits, so I find a beard is an absolute necessity. I can't have the one and not the other. I know. I'm stalling. I just... Man, I don't want to talk about this movie more than I already have. And talking about mustaches is kind of like talking about Sam Elliott, and he's in this movie. So it's kind of relevant, except goddammit, even his mustache wouldn't be caught dead in this piece of shit. It wouldn't even show up just to be shaved, like Edward James Olmos's in Battlestar Galactica. Today's film is a bit of an oddity. When it came out, I thought it was pretty solid. Kind of like a first mustache. Sorry, ladies and folks with an X who never experienced this, but I'm going to address the listenership who were males when they went through puberty, so hang in for a second. Like, remember 7th grade when you started growing your first facial hair and you thought you were a real man now and it had to look awesome because it was facial hair? Maybe you offered mustache rides as a pickup line because, let's face it, we were all kind of dickheads and we heard older kids say it and so we thought it was cool. But then you grow up and you look back at your junior high yearbook and you're just like, oh no, no, sweetie, you just, that is so bad. This movie is the cinematic equivalent of that mustache. It's a real shame because this is one of those films that really wanted to honor the fallen. It's the true story of the first major engagement of American forces in Vietnam. It takes the time to get the names right and the horrific war wounds right, and it even thinks it's being even-handed and fair in its portrayals of the other side. It even has a pretty rocking cast for its time. Pre-fall from Grace Mel Gibson, Greg Kinnear, and Madeline motherfucking Stowe, not to mention the great Sam Elliott, but it ages about as well as your first mustache. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So join us for a montage of a montage of montages as a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director joyfully dissect this peculiarly intentioned 2002 true story from writer-director, the one, and thanks be to God, the only, Randall Wallace. We were soldiers. Who wants a mustache ride? Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with... Katie. And Liam. And today we're here to talk about a 2002 film directed by Randall Wallace and and partly written by We Were Soldiers. Everybody got their shit and pants on? (laughs) (laughs) 
real quick before we pass it off to Katie for her mission briefing, I just wanted to do a couple of housekeeping things. At this point, we should be midway through September and our Patreon will have released. So I just wanted to thank uh, not only Katie and Liam for all the extra hard work they've been putting in in getting those recordings done, writing the intros, writing the briefings, all that. Nate, our producer, has been working very hard behind the scenes to teach himself uh, audio editing and helping me out on that front. Otherwise, I don't think we could have pulled it off on time. And of course, I've been editing everything else and working hard as well. We got new art on the way. We'll set up a merch shop uh, at some point after that. So yeah, we'll pass around the details on our Facebook, but you can go to Patreon forward slash Danger Close, I believe, or if you just go to the Patreon website and search Danger Close, you will find us. And what we are offering you guys is our new show, Danger Close Enough, which is going to be all the war films that don't exactly fit in the traditional category, science fiction, fantasy, Everything Liam hates that we can kind of describe with the word war. It's the war on Liam. The war on Mm -hmm. Liam. At this point, we can talk about the episodes. We did Terminator 1, or the Terminator rather, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Atomic Blonde, which was a surprise pick from Liam that we all really enjoyed and was fun, Independence Day, and those are the four we're going to be releasing on Patreon, and I have a surprise episode that I'll be releasing hopefully at the same time maybe just like a week later but uh, that one's gonna be free for everyone and we have a very special guest on that episode and we're gonna talk about a verhoven film so i'll i'll wait until that's been released which hopefully by the time you're hearing this it has and yeah so i just wanted to thank my partners here nate and everyone else who's contributed to this podcast all our researchers who have been pulling together the history Some people came in kind of on short notice and pulled together the history for this episode. We'll thank them later. I'm really grateful to you guys. And honestly, it really makes me feel like our intent from the beginning, which was to have a community-involved and community-based podcast, has really come to fruition and has held true all the way through. This is, what, our 16th episode, I think? So... Yeah, thank you to everyone who's been involved. I think everyone is doing a kick-ass job, and I'm really proud of everyone for coming together and helping us do this amazing project. I know Katie and Liam have been really into it and really excited. So, yeah, thanks, everyone. You know know what, Dan? You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Liam. On behalf of everyone. (laughs) And on that note, We can hand it off to Katie when she's done laughing for (laughs) our mission briefing. Released less than a year after the tragedy of September 11th, We Were Soldiers successfully captures the tone of American war films at that time. While the first hour spends most of its time introducing the soldiers and their wives, the real story of the film is set during the first large battle of Vietnam in the Ia Drang Valley. It stars Mel Gibson as Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore, a capable military man who leads his forces into a fierce firefight using newly developed helicopter tactics, Sam Elliott as his gruff sergeant major, and Madeline Stowe as his stalwart wife who helps the other wives cope with their eventual losses. As soon as the men land, they are thrown into a fierce firefight against the much larger force of North Vietnamese troops, led by another consummate military leader, Lieutenant Colonel Nguyen Hu An, played by Duong Don. 
The film flips between the American troops inside the bunker of the Vietnamese as they plan their attacks and back home where the wives wait with bated breath to hear their husbands' fates. There was a stark contrast between the reviews on this film. Most of those written for American publications were pretty gentle with their criticism and appreciated even the most schmaltzy choices director and screenwriter Randall Wallace made. However, outside of America, this was given harsher treatment, with most criticizing the attempt to make an apolitical war film, the corny dialogue, and especially the treatment of the wives. Americans found the inclusion of the North Vietnamese perspective to be moving, while others found it to be a token effort at best to fend off criticisms of racism. However, Mel Gibson was universally applauded for his performance, along with Barry Pepper, who plays Joe Galloway, who was the war correspondent who co-wrote the book this was based on with the real Lieutenant Colonel Moore. With a budget of $75 million and a box office take of $114 million, it didn't exactly smash any records, and it was snubbed by all of the major awards. We haven't done a film about Vietnam since our first episode, Full Metal Jacket, and while I was watching We Were Soldiers, I kept calling back to my experience with that film, and unfortunately, I was comparing the two quite a bit. I found so much of this film uncomfortable to watch, and I think that is because it's such a reflection of the attitudes at the time it was made. I was in high school on 9-11 and watched in real time as Hollywood's attitudes towards war films took a sharp turn. And this one just reeks of that tendency towards glorifying the American military forces, regardless of the actual circumstances. So was I alone in that, or did you two feel that way? Well... I have to say it's tough for me to think of this as a movie in the context of 9-11. And I tried to, I actually did try to like force because I was very conscious of it this time watching it, of the idea that this, this movie came out less than a year later. But I swear to God, I don't think if it were made today with the same writer and director that a single thing would have changed. I don't think this is a 9-11 movie so much as it's a Randall Wallace movie. I don't think that this would have gotten funding today. Yeah, that I agree. I don't think it would have gotten like the same the same attention that this one got if it were made today. But I think that's because everybody kind of knows that Randall Wallace is a fucking hack. <laughs> We're just going and there right away, folks. Ju- I'm just just going to go right in there. He's a hack, period, full stop. So <laughs> I don't know how much your theater work was known to the public in 2002, Liam. But I wonder if Randall Wallace knew that he was just teeing up the most gigantic softball for Liam in 2021 to critique this film. <laughs> he had no idea what he was doing, nor that he cared. Like he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't give a fuck about me. Like, obviously <laughs> like I'm sitting in jammy pants in Pittsburgh. Like Randall Wallace doesn't give a shit about me, <laughs> but dude also hasn't had a directing credit since 2015. I thought you were going to run with my fantasy where Randall Wallace was like trying to please you somehow and failing, but I guess, I guess my joke's well, not going to land. No, he did not. Yes. And that one, I'm sorry. I did Ian. not. Yes. I like, 
I'm admitting the fact that Randall Wallace has a successful career <laughs> or had one. It's never too late. As of 2015. I mean, it's hard to make Braveheart look like it is amazingly written, yet I feel like this movie accomplishes that, if nothing else. I think that he was still riding the Braveheart wave with Definitely. this movie. By getting Mel Gibson to do it, and by... um, am, am I crazy? That song that kept playing intermittently, was that supposed to be like an Irish or a Scottish... So it is, I forgot to look into this more deeply, but in the trivia, I was reading that it has some connection to the army, almost like Amazing Grace or something like that. Someone please correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that it was like the army tends to unofficially play that song, not like at a funeral, but it's like there was some connection there because they play it like three times. And I was like, I mean, we'll talk about about the score in a second, but the whole time I'm sitting here going like. Isn't there an actual Gary Owen song that they could have like done a, a, a soulful recording of? No, <laughs> just no. I guess that was the answer because they sure didn't. Well, I mean, well, I think there is one. Yes, I'm sure. But. Uh, yeah, that was such a strange choice. And I felt like it was like. Am I hearing bagpipes in Vietnam? Like, what the shit is going on? Yeah, that end moment, I was like, this does not line up with what we have seen so far in my mind, but... This is like, hey, guys, remember when I wrote Braveheart? Yeah. (laughs) I mean... That had Mel Gibson. We can give him credit for not using, not forcing any CCR into this film. You got to give him like a quarter of a point for that. It would have been much better. (laughs) I mean, not for this movie. I wanted some Ride of the Valkyrie and some Fortunate Son playing while these helicopters fly in. But that's that's not what kind of movie this is. I don't give a shit. It would have been a better movie. <laughs> Let's talk about the score because this seems like as good a time as any to bring it up because Nick Glennie Smith is the composer here. And I feel like whoever went through his portfolio and decided to hire this guy to do the score might be the same person who okayed that song that they play three times because this this is the most milk toast score that I think I've ever heard where it's like technically competent like you know people are there was music there was music and there was a people were playing instruments and they were tuned but the combination of how banal and boring it was I'm gonna hate you know, I was thinking about the whole time I was watching. I'm like, I'm going to hate every second of putting together this final edit because I'm going to have to choose some music, at least for the beginning or the end. You should just use terrible. CCR instead. I mean, I might. You know, I actually, that's not the worst idea ever. <laughs> I might do that. We are protesting. It's only CCR for this. And then to make the score even worse, they lay it on so fucking thick the entire film without a without a breath there's not a second where the score is not painting you into a corner and trying to tell you how to feel and also failing at that but i was just like 
I, I wanted to mute the film and just read the subtitles because this score was annoying more than anything else. So I'm not surprised at this song. I, I can't remember if I've told you guys my favorite comment on scoring a movie ever came from came from Betty Davis. I can't wait. Let's hear it. It was um shit. What's the title of the movie? The one where she goes blind at the end. It's not is not Dark Victory. It's something else. Is it Dark Victory? Yes, it is Dark Victory. Okay, good. I'm not crazy. Uh, Dark Victory. Spoiler alert. She goes blind at the end. (gasps) But it's like a spoiler that you find out is coming like halfway through the movie. At the end, they know that she's going to, that her brain tumor or whatever it is that's wrong with her. She only has a little bit left to live, like minutes. And they're like, finally, like, you're going to lose your vision. Everything's going to go dark. And that's, you know, that's going to be time. And there's this moment where like, she's getting up and she's walking to the stairs. She, she's going to go up to her room and just like lay down and expire there. And the last shot of the movie is like her feeling her way back into the house by herself and feeling her way up the stairs. And they're shooting the movie. They're shooting the scene and she, she's in the middle of it. She's like right in the, in the, 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 the visceral, time you know she's full performance and she gets to the first landing and then she turns around and looks at the director and says who's scoring this picture <laughs> and they said uh i don't i'm not sure bet i i don't know if they've picked somebody yet and she goes it's not max steiner is it <laughs> and i said i don't know why she said because either i'm going up these stairs or max steiner's going up these stairs but god damn it we're not going together <laughs> oh that's amazing i love it that's pretty good and it was max steiner no, but, of, course it was. <laughs> of course it was max steiner but he it, max steiner wrote some great stuff he did the score for casablanca and myriad other fantastic films but he's not one that you would say had a light touch and so whenever i find a a score that is just really what I would call ham-fisted. It, it puts me in mind of that, that Betty Davis anecdote. So what I, 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 the reason I brought up the 9-11 thing and when this movie is made is because that is what a lot of the criticisms drew on, is especially the ones that weren't in America, of how like this feels very much like a response to something like that, even though this movie was in production at that point. So it, it's not like a... It isn't an actual response. Yeah, and Randall it, Wallace was in his like gold-plated bathtub smoking a cigar thinking about doing this movie well before 9-11. Exactly, exactly. But it has a lot of the flavors of the jingoism that we saw after that time. And to be clear, like this is a story that is well worth telling and... A lot of very brave people went in and died and did a lot of heroic things. And that is not in any way what we are criticizing when we are talking about this movie. This is very much directed at how this comes together. The filmmaking, the, yeah. Yeah, the dialogue, the script. And it just is painful at certain points. But I think you're totally right, Liam, in that the funding would not be probably not be approved today because it wouldn't really have much to offer, especially because it's so different from the vast majority of Vietnam films. 
and Randall Wallace sucks. Yeah, that too. That too. <laughs> I think like his, I, I, I am beat it. He hasn't directed anything. Thank God. Since 2015, that was a, apparently a horribly revisionist civil war movie. Oh no, I don't want to see that ever. I mean, we should, we should totally do it. We definitely just should. for funsies, you know, sometime when we're feeling hungry, but that was his follow-up to heaven is for real. Sam, I remember heaven is for real. No, no, nope. never even <laughs> no. didn't even know it existed. And I'm now mm. feeling disappointed. Well, you, you live in Northern California, so I don't think it, I don't think heaven is for real played anywhere near Berkeley. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> the Bay area is immune to heaven is for real. Is it a Christian film or something? What, what is Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. You know, it's it's almost like you think back to all the times where you looked at rich people and complained and you're like, oh, these rich people are, you know, making money off the backs of workers and never like contributing anything to society. And then Randall Wallace descends from his Scottish high throne and tries to make movies. And you're like, oh, go back to your castle. Stop. Stop doing what you're doing. Yeah. Yes, please. It's just please not. just go back to being a nobleman and not doing this. Good Lord. I mean, I don't know if he was rich before he started directing. I'm just saying he's the descendant of one of the related to the kings of Scotland. Essentially, he was he was an upstart Scottish <laughs> nobleman. OK, fine. This movie has so much wrong with it. Do you ever do you ever sit in front of a giant glorious just the most perfect all-you-can-eat buffet and you just got to figure out where to start that's how i feel right now exactly yeah. i feel like i have google paralysis where it's like you sit down in front of a google screen and you're like i can ask you anything and then like your <laughs> mind just goes blank like i don't even know where to begin with this fucking movie well why don't i then because we're all three of us are gonna have to take turns shitting on this movie I apologize for anyone who really loves this movie. You're not going to like this episode. But why don't I give the history and some of the people who died in combat here, you know, the respect that they're due and kind of get into the story that way. And then we can talk about the film a little more. Side note, this incident is preceded by an incident that I only found out about recently, which is the two-month siege of Duck Co. I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced. I'm sorry for my terrible Vietnamese uh, pronunciation. This nearby Special Forces camp was laid under siege by three MVA regiments uh, a few months before this in 1965. And one of my really good friends who I served with in the Marine Corps, his father was a Green Beret in Vietnam, and he was at this camp defending against this siege for two months. And I'm actually really hoping to get an interview with him. He's in his eighties, but he's a sharp guy. And I'd really like to get an interview from him. I listened to a speech by him. He started off going to Iran to rescue these uh, Americans from a downed flight in like a snowy mountain, like crazy, crazy stories. But anyways, he was in this battle where he had to get convince pilots to come in and give them supplies or they weren't going to make it another day and i noticed in the notes on the battle of yadrung that this was in response to a special forces camp that had been laid under siege they don't mention the name but i was like oh that's that story so i know someone who was connected to the story that kind of started this battle 
So you guys can look forward to that. When I can get to these veteran interviews, I'll have one that's related to this film. So this battle happened over a few days in November of 1965 from the 14th to the 18th. It's very famous because it was the first major battle between the U.S. Army and the North Vietnamese Army. It was also the first big operation to involve helicopters, which were a relatively new thing in combat. I mean, Sikorsky started to develop the first helicopters in the late 30s, uh, 1940s, I think 39. And then they were used a little bit in Korea. But, you know, the Hueys that we see here, the UH-1, is kind of the first deployment in large numbers of helicopters mixed with aircraft operations and we'll kind of talk about how that all gets organized a little bit later some of the aviation scenes in this movie are great speaking of things that are good in this film so vietnam is one of these places not unlike afghanistan who has been through a lot of occupation and war and the chinese had five different occupations of vietnam dating all the way back to 111 BCE and through the 1400s, several hundred years at a time, sometimes 50 years at a time. The film opens with the First Indochina War, which is sort of the end of the French colonial empire in Vietnam. The French were first in Vietnam in the late 1850s and didn't really abandon the idea of maintaining a colony of Vietnam until 1954. If you guys want to watch a good series that goes all the way back to the French occupation, uh, Ken Burns' Vietnam that came out mm, three or four years ago. It's like a 10-part series. They're about an hour and a half each. It's like the last Ken Burns to have come out, I believe, and really, really good overall history. Oh, by the way, if you want to look into the story of Duck Co., which precedes this, there's a couple of books you can look up. It doesn't take a hero by General Norman Schwarzkopf, who actually eventually went into that camp and was part of the rescue effort, and Colt Terry Green Beret by Charles D. Patton. Those are the two books that mention my friend's father, who was Major uh, Sario Carvalho, who was involved for that incident. So, yeah, the film starts showing off, showing a battle between the Viet Minh and the French. Were those uh, uh, from from the hats? French Foreign Legion, baby. I was going to say, they look, those looked like uh, Bo Travai hats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, of course, thought of you guys and thought of that film, except that I, uh, I forget the discrepancy, but they wouldn't have been wearing those hats in combat in Vietnam. So I think that was more for the audience to highlight them as French soldiers, in this case, legionnaires, but not accurate. Thanks, Randall. We would have missed that. From them all speaking fucking French. Yeah, I think that those are specifically enlisted men's hats and the soldiers depicted were officers, possibly. I forget. I can't remember right now, but it's one of the many inaccuracies, although they do go through a lot of effort to get uniforms right here. So a lot of the army uniforms we see later, the cavalry and infantry insignia and all that stuff is actually pretty accurate, which I got to give them credit for. By the mid-50s, the French are getting out of Vietnam, and then we eventually got involved through the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And initially, we were providing mostly support and training, etc. By the mid-60s, we actually had 
a good contingent of troops in Vietnam that continued to escalate. And that's where the film brings us into 1965. Now, I found myself a lot of the time watching this battle and the way it was shown where I was like, am I just easily confused or does this just seem like people running around shooting? Like it didn't feel all that cohesive. And I don't know that that's necessarily a problem of the storytelling of the combat scenes, because when you read the actual description of the battle, that's kind of what it is. This is the... 3rd Brigade, 1st Cavalry Division. Moore's unit is uh, 1st Battalion, 7th Cavalry Regiment, and was a subordinate unit of the 3rd Brigade. You can go look this up on a chart and break it down, but honestly, it's confusing even to me having been in the military, so I don't want to get into that very far because we'll just go down a rabbit hole. But basically, they knew that the North Vietnamese Army was in that area of Yadrang, which is a river. Um, And they were on the northeast side of this mountain range. And so they were essentially going in for a search and destroy mission. You have to remember, too, that the overall strategy in the Vietnam War, which we talked about in Full Metal Jacket and then General Westmoreland, the commander in charge of all the forces in the Vietnam theater, was kind of like we were never going to occupy or fully take over the territory. The idea was to inflict so many casualties that the NBA would not be able to recover and that they would essentially give up fighting and trying to take over the South through attrition. So it was always a simplified objective of just trying to kill as many of them as we could and really piling up the bodies. And so you see that on a tactical level as well. Now, helicopters introduced this new concept of kind of non-linear warfare and what that means is not having you know a line of soldiers that forms the front line with an opposing line of soldiers but more of a on a map it would be again non-linear and more spread out but through the use of ingress and egress with helicopters you could kind of drop forces tactically where you needed to at least theoretically and flank enemy forces you know bring in uh support Etc. Wouldn't that be similar to uh, MacArthur's island hopping during World War II, only on a peninsula with helicopters? Similar kind of strategy there, it seems to me, as a layperson. Yes, but faster and on a smaller scale. I think that right. through coordinating uh, air insertions, you would be able to really, theoretically at least, control the battlefield by being able to bring in reinforcements as they were needed pretty quickly from your bases. Also, we're talking about mountainous, mostly jungle terrain here. So not an easy play. There's no roads. There's not really any other way to insert troops. So helicopters were extremely necessary and an advantage that only the Americans had in this situation. So the the air superiority was definitely on the American side, but more specifically, the ability to bring in soldiers and infantrymen via helicopters. So... This was an offensive mission originally, but they didn't realize when they went in that they ended up being 450 to about 2200. So they were vastly outnumbered. Of course, as you see in the film, the MVA worked a lot in underground tunnels. And so and I'm sure intelligence had a hard time figuring out how many enemy forces were where. 
And so all of a sudden it became a defensive sort of survival mission where, you know, they they brought in as many helicopters as they could initially, which was eight in the film. They augmented with CG to add more like they rented eight Hueys, but there were more helicopters than that. But either way, you could only bring in so many platoons at a time. They would have to come in, set up a perimeter and then the helicopters would go back and bring more troops later. So in that process, there was a lot of firefighting going on. And we have all the details of this in the research. I've got 30 pages here. Speaking of which, I'd like to thank Dennis, Kyle, and Micah. Micah's our U.S. Army infantry officer, so he studied a lot of this history, and they provided a ton of research for this. We're not going to be able to get into all of it, but when I put up the surplus ordinance later, you guys can read about this in more detail. So, the process you see is pretty accurate in terms of how the combat happens. What you see happening at the beginning, uh, before they land, is called SEAD, uh, S-E-A-A-D, Suppression of Enemy Air Defense. So, essentially, there's only so many cleared landings where you could take a helicopter. And the North Vietnamese intelligence scouted the area and did recon just as much as anybody else would. So, they knew where those areas were. Now, the American strategy was to fire indirect fire with mortars and artillery to kind of clear the area and make it safe before the helicopters came in. The double-edged sword of that, of course, is that you're also announcing exactly where you're going to be landing. And so if the enemy's able to stay in their tunnels and kind of stay safe in the bombardment, they can basically create an you know set up an ambush and be ready for you when you're coming in so that's a little bit of what we see happening and then from there the army's trying to coordinate all the various you know air assault elements combat air patrols which we'll get into in a little bit but tactically this was a u.s victory the kill ratio was 10 to 1 on the u.s side um Kind of, again, in a microcosm that I think represents the entire Vietnam War, the fact that it was a tactical win still did not really make any progress in winning the war for the U.S. The next day, something that's not shown in the film, they had another encounter with the MVA and they were able to recover quickly enough to then kill another 150 U.S. service members and wound 120-something the next day. So the problem is that this war of attrition strategy wasn't working and the MVA were able to recover and come back at the US and then again disappear into the jungle. So I think it's kind of a it's a good example of how the whole war went overall. So that's that's the basic background of everything. Now question I had about the North Vietnamese forces as depicted in the film. A lot of it seems to be their regular military. You know you know, like chain of command uniforms and whatnot. Yeah. North Vietnamese army regulars is what they right. called. Yes. We see a lot of the North Vietnamese army regulars uniform, you know, standard issue sort of stuff. Then in some of the combat scenes, we start seeing people who are wearing like the conical hats, the leaf hats in just regular, what I would assume would be regular civilian attire not military issue um were there do do we have any idea what the historical accuracy of that depiction is were there civilians in the vicinity that would have participated were these was this a like did it blend in better i so a i don't know the answer to that question um but just 
to cover it briefly, I didn't notice that at all. I noticed guys in kind of like khaki uniforms. I didn't see it any popped up every attire. once in a while. Like there, really? it, it, it for the most part, it was the military, and like every once in a while, it would just be like a dude. Okay, I did not notice that. I mean, this did not come up in the research, but I would venture to guess that the Viet Cong are a force that was organized a little bit later in the war when the U.S. occupation was more lengthy. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like when the NVA like had ostensibly sort of lost and then they ended up fighting the Viet Cong to much less success. So it's quite possible that at this point that wasn't really happening yet, but I didn't notice that. Um, maybe someone can write in and tell us what they saw because I didn't notice what Liam is talking about. I don't doubt it. Just for the most part, I saw khaki uniforms and people from that unit sort of attacking uh, right. one, one seven, as I think it would be called. So they really take a long time to get to Vietnam and that is a huge detriment. And I think the biggest reason for me is like, I really want to talk about the wives mm -hmm, here. Mm -hmm. So did this movie. Cause exactly. And I, I'm not entirely sure why, because while I'm kind of interested in that, that's kind of its own movie. And in this, it just feels like dead weight. Like, I think they only say his wife's name once. And I don't know that any of the other wives get names. It just feels so. And, and there's such, like, almost all of the rest of the characters in this movie, there's such, like, paper dolls. And that they don't really have personalities or backstories or. Well, one of them is one of them is a black lady. Oh, That's yes. her personality. And then there's the one oh, lady boy. who who doesn't know that racism is a thing. <gasps> oh, God, and I'm so are we gonna mad. Are going to jump right in already on that scene? I oh. am. I am, because it, it, those, those mm. scenes could have not mm. more painfully obviously been written by a white dude. Yeah. Well, and he's, he's Scottish, too. So he obviously doesn't have any kind of awareness of American racism. I was... Honestly, very surprised that they found a black actor who was willing to actually play that part in that scene. I mean, by all means, you're an actor, you're trying to get work, whatever. I'm, I'm certainly Everybody's not judging get her. Paid. I'm just saying I'm surprised because both the main scenes that she's in were so painfully... I don't even know if it's maybe it's because Mel Gibson's in this film that they were trying to be like, let's make sure that we paint some like we are anti-racist scenes into this or something. This was pre meltdown Mel Gibson. That's true. Yeah, they nobody, didn't, nobody knew. Nobody knew what a piece of shit Mel Gibson right. was at this point. So well, nobody in general yeah. knew. <laughs> yeah, like the public, the public had no idea. Right. Uh, people at parties that heard him say fucked up shit. All right. I'm sure it was an open secret in Hollywood. Right. Yeah, it was. It was. To your point, I think we are really looking at a room full of sexy lamps, basically. I mean, in terms of <laughs> the characters lamps. and the names of whatever, if you fill that room with sexy lamps. Madeline then, Stowe is like the sexiest lamp you could find, though. Like, I love Madeline Stowe. I mean, the idea that there would be 
a white person who wouldn't understand what a whites only sign that there would be anybody who is act who grew up in America is living there. Maybe she was from Maine or some shit. I don't know. Let oh, me- oh no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's not get it twisted. Maine was just as bad. That was so incredibly ludicrous. And it wasn't just the fact that they even wrote that in, but her reaction. And then the, that like, the black lady has to explain, explain it to her. like segregation to her. I was just like, oh, my Lord, shoot me in the face. This is so painful and terrible and just so unrealistic. Well, don't forget, we, we solved racism in the 90s. Right. So this was a, like a, a weird hangover from from that where it was like, oh, we could, it, everything about this movie feels like it's looking back on a very quaint time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is the most appropriate definition of tokenism, but that's how it felt like to me. Not just it was not just the black wife for the let's explain segregate. Let's white explain segregation to the audience, I guess. I don't even know who they're explaining it to. And then the scene where she gets the news that her husband died, where she just says, Mm-mm, like 17 times in a row while crying. And I was like, uncomfortable. This is such a weird scene. And the choices everybody's making are really strange. But also, I feel like the actual black soldier in combat, like his role was uh, to die later, which may have been accurate. We'll talk about that in a second. But I know that like basically... Almost every soldier in this unit was like represented on screen by someone. That is one thing that they went through a lot of trouble to do. There is a scene where Mel Gibson like pats him on the back as he's coming by or something, sort of like mm-hmm. a good job soldier kind of scene. And I was Slaps like, him on the ass. I mean, good yeah. Game. And I was like, oh, okay, that was that guy's role. It's to, so Mel Gibson could like touch a black person and tell them good job, <laughs> I guess. But again, the surprising part. Because I knew this was going to come up because we keep talking about Mel Gibson. But I was like, oh, man, he's going to have an executive producer title. I'll bet you he was in on the writing team. I was like assuming all this shit. And then I get on IMDb and I'm like, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore. That's it. So at least officially, Mel Gibson's dirty little fingers were not involved in the writing, production, anything else about this film other than playing that part, which blew my mind because I thought for sure. Right. I, th- I did, too. I did, too. Have you heard that koalas have fingerprints that are so close to human fingerprints that they actually can fuck up crime scenes? No. In Australia? I had no idea. Yeah, they're they're almost indistinguishable. The only reason I bring that up is because you don't need Mel Gibson's grubby little fingerprints on it when you have Randall Wallace. <laughs> Randall Wallace is is the less talented Mel Gibson of writer directors. Who's the koala in this crime scene? I just want to like get this. Yes. <laughs> I'm <laughs> so like, I, I, I want to follow this they're analogy all to its little syphilis ridden rodents. <laughs> they're not rodents. <laughs> That is an insult to koalas, sir. Please, can one of our Australian listeners, A, tell us if the fingerprint story is true, but also I've heard that koalas are so dumb that if you 
fill a bowl with eucalyptus leaves, they'll like starve because they don't recognize them as food anymore unless they're like on a tree or on the ground. I've just heard that rumor. I would like to know if that's true. We're just putting all this work on our Australian. Hey, listeners. we're just trying come to on Australia. Out. Come to play. Thank you for listening. Hey. You guys have the most deadly animals and also the cutest bear like thing. That's not a bear, but it's a marsupial it's a marsupial. Okay. Also, Mel Gibson's from Australia, which Jackie did not know. This is the first movie where she figured that out because I think I had to tell her because she was like, oh, my God, he's like such a stereotypical jingoistic American. And I'm like, and he's not even American. (laughs) She was like, well, that's the other thing in this is am I crazy or was Mel Gibson just doing his best John Wayne impression in this movie? Totally was. Oh, I I grew up watching John Wayne movies and it's just this would have been better with John Wayne in it. I don't know. I, I gotta, I will say, as much as I don't want to be the one to stand up and defend Mel Gibson here, I could not with a straight face say that Mel Gibson is a bad actor. I, I will not say that. I'm not. I, I love. I love Mad Max too much to ever say that. I'm not saying he's the greatest. I don't think he deserves an Oscar for acting, but I'm just saying of all the things I could choose to shit on Mel Gibson for, his acting is not really one of them i kind of like his acting it's fine so i actually had to a while back look up all the reasons why mel gibson sucks like as a human it's a long list well it it is and it isn't because i mean he's not charlie sheen or anything he's not charlie sheen and he's not weinstein no as far as like the people that mel gibson has hurt it's been relatively few people. He gets drunk and goes on racist tirades and he believes a lot of really shitty things and says so openly. He probably doesn't think they're shitty things. (laughs) No, no. I'm saying he says the, he says the shitty things that he believes. Yes. Yes. I think he has opinions that are hurtful and are bad and are like bad for society. Like NCAS, can cause injury because he has ostensibly a pulpit that he can spew his ideas forth from, and he has fame and money to do these things. But he's not raping women in hotel rooms. The bar for like a shitty Hollywood person has been set so high now. Right. There's a lot of shitheads in there's a lot of shitheads and like garbage human Mel Gibson. Fuck Mel Gibson. He sucks. But it's like he's not Woody Allen, he's not Bill Cosby, he's not Harvey Weinstein. Like, there are people that have physically inflicted harm onto vulnerable people and then use the system to get away with it very recently. It's almost like there are people who are hiding their real behavior because they know it's immoral or they should know it's immoral and then get caught. Woody Allen, Harvey Weinstein, etc. Mel Gibson for the most part, is proud of his ideology and behavior. He doesn't hide it. I mean, racist rants aside, I'm just talking about the religious, you know, ultra conservatism, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's it's a different thing. Like, I don't think he thinks he's a hateful person. Exactly. You know? No, I no, I don't think so either. He's, you know, he because he's, you know, apologized. And, and the, the point that he says in interviews is he's like, look, most people on their worst day in the middle of a nervous breakdown. Don't have it be news. 
he's like, with me, it was news. It was the, my absolute lowest point, and I'm sorry for it, and I will keep apologizing for it, so on and so forth. I don't think he, I mean, he very well might be sorry, but I still think he thinks those shitty things that he said while he was drunk. You know what I mean? Yeah. As an actor, he's a more than competent movie star. He does the thing. He does the thing. He has good crying eye. He has like subtlety in his face. He has not so much in this movie. Not so much in this movie. I don't like his performance in this movie. Mm. But, you know, I I don't think he's bad in Braveheart. Mm -hmm. He has variation to his tone and inflection and, and you know there's he he finds interesting way to ways to read lines most of the time but he still falls into the movie star thing where like he has his roles that he plays and that's like he's got his crazy face and he's got his serious face you know like so he's he's fine he's 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 fine one of the good things that has come out of his fall from grace is that nobody's looking to him to open a movie anymore. Yeah. He he's verboten in that regards. He's not a bankable star any longer. Really? Which is no good because it's too much of the same thing after a while. Like once we saw him be crazy and we saw him be charming and we saw him be like, probably his best acting was, Honestly, was conspiracy theory. That's probably as good as you're going to get from Mel Gibson. And he's done a lot of uh, sort of Liam Neeson style revenge movies like Payback is fun. Yeah. Yes. I saw that movie with my mom. I saw it with my dad. In theaters. Let me tell you, there's a couple scenes that were real uncomfortable for both of us. And none of them were the violent ones. (laughs) That woman took me to go see things that I, I she would not now. I'll say that. But yeah, no, like he's, he's, he's competent. I don't love him in this. I think you said it well and that he's fine. Yeah, he's, he's adequate. If this were a John Wayne movie that was made in the forties, you really wouldn't have to change much except the blood and the war. Yeah, I could see that. You're not lying. Yeah. I, f- I feel like in this movie, cause, uh, cause I agree. Like I like, like I said, I love all the Mad Max movies, but he, the first three he's in are still good. Lethal Weapon, like his classics are good. And in his in the right role, Mel Gibson can shine. I, I think in this, he's really rehashing his, you know, his glory days of the Patriot, Braveheart, obviously. And it just feels, it feels like, it feels like he's kind of tired in this. He's just kind of going through the motions. There's nothing new about this performance. It's just, bits of previous performances recycled and it's just not compelling. And I think a huge part of that is that the screenwriting and almost everything else that is indirectly related to the acting doesn't help, right? Like it's not elevating any of the acting. It's like if he had a phenomenal character that was super well written, it could make something different. Like I don't want to tiptoe around it. He's great in Braveheart. Like Braveheart has tons of problems despite all the academy awards that's won and i am sure we are going to do that film on this show and it's gonna be great 
But yeah, his acting is good in it, and his character is interesting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are plenty of good things you can say about Braveheart before you start dumping on it. This one, I feel like the good things are few and far between, and a lot of them have nothing to do with the dialogue, with the exception of a few like funny lines that mostly come from Sam Elliott. Any of some bitches calls me grandpa. I'll kill you. Fucking love Sam Elliott. I I didn't believe it was Sam Elliott at first, honestly. I was like, it is weird to see him without a mustache. It's like he's missing a body part. It does, it's like Tom it Selleck. You know, you're like, you can't know. Like, you look so much who, better. Who did this to you, Sam Elliott? You deserve your mustache. It's like watching Tom Selleck in Folks when he has no mustache. Yeah. I, I will say, though, that having to have given his character a like army reg mustache would have been just such a disappointing thing that I'm glad they just shaved it off. It's like, if he can't have an 1800s tombstone mustache, then it's like, just don't even, don't even give him one. So basically there. So for those at home who don't know me, (laughs) my favorite book of all time, number one with a bullet is catch 22. It's so much my favorite book that I Never even bothered to come up with a second favorite book. <laughs> it has been my favorite book since I have read it. I'm about I'm about five chapters in. It's very good. Sam Elliott in this movie is in my mind Major DeCoverly from Catch Twenty Two. He's like so stern that everybody's afraid of him, and like nobody even like he's he's Major Blank DeCoverly because nobody has had the balls to ask him his first name. Like in the book, it's always just like underline, like there's this space before DeCoverly. Right. And I just picture Sam Elliott from this movie in that role. And I love that he's a sergeant major. My grandfather uh, was a sergeant major in the army and they just have like this reputation for being like the toughest, tough, tough to ever tough since tough went to tough Phil. He does a pretty damn good job of being the cantankerous sergeant major. It's not like... I have seen more accurate portrayals. Micah took exception to some of the things they show that he's like, I don't think that would actually happen in real life. Um, More specifically, at the beginning, they're training like all officers. That was one thing that was interesting about this film is oftentimes I feel like the military depiction, both in training and in combat, is either focused on the enlisted men or it's a nice mix of enlisted and officers whereas this really seemed to focus on the officers despite the fact that it's a whole battalion and there's tons of enlisted men in it it really was about the experience of the officers in this battle which was interesting and so of course you have this old very, very old relationship that we've talked about before between the senior enlisted guy in the unit and the younger officers, including a young John Hamm. I noticed that too. There are just crazy amounts. Like there's the guy who plays uh, and the lacrosse player from uh, from American Pie, Chris Klein, and then there's the guy who who plays uh, Lieutenant Coulson, who also dies terribly in this one. I was like, am I going to have to watch Coulson die again? And then God you damn did. it. <laughs> yeah, like, and Greg Kinnear. Like, this is a plethora I love of- Greg Kinnear, not in this movie, but, like, in everything else. <laughs> yeah, what a waste. What a waste of Greg Kinnear. All Greg Kinnear did in this film was stare moodily at Mel Gibson and salute him from the helicopter. Another thing mm-hmm. that's... No, he pulled a gun on that dude. Right. That's a thing you can do in the army, right? Okay, 
fair, that also happens. You can just pull a sidearm on uh, on fellow. Yeah, you can. Officers. You can just drink a beer on duty, pull out a sidearm on someone that pisses you off, and then mournfully salute Mel Gibson out of the cockpit of your helicopter every chance you get. I mean, yeah, there was random beer drinking in this, and because there's the scene where. Gibson meets him for the first time and he walks away and just hands him a Miller High Life, by the way, which it's the champagne of beers. Paul found hilarious because <laughs> at that time, Miller was really trying to separate itself from its previous reputation. He was like, that is not accurate. They did not have those bottles at that time. So they failed even in that regard. In nice. this. <laughs> he's, a, he's a Miller beer pedant. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty funny. He used to work at a liquor store, so he has all this weird random trivia about about liquor. Because he said that, I looked at him and was like, how do you know this? It's like, oh, liquor store. I was like, oh, okay. In Pennsylvania, we, we don't sell beer in liquor stores. Really? Oh, you guys are one of those states that has weird-ass rules. We have very weird-ass rules here oh, in Pennsylvania. Dude. We just got beer and wine into grocery stores like five years ago. What? Well, where did you buy beer before then? At the Pop and Beer Warehouse. You had to go to like a beer distributor. Because that makes sense. Weird. Like you couldn't get it at gas stations. You couldn't get it at the grocery store. Like you had to go to oh. a different place. Older states have some weird ass rules. We do have some, uh, we do have drive in beer warehouses because of that, where you like drive your car in and tell them what you want and they put it in your trunk and then you drive That's, out. that's crazy. But yeah. anyway, what I was thinking is he hands them the beer and they're walking and it's the middle of the fucking day. And I was like, cool to just drink while you're on duty yeah so oh is that accurate micah said micah says no despite the okay fact, despite the fact that this is vietnam and that there was, I was a, gonna say in vietnam that's right like I mean, this is vietnam and there was a draft and people were they're not smoking hash out of shotguns exactly soldiers were actually doing drugs in certain scenarios but i think in this like training environment back home at fort benning they would not have just been like passing each other beers literally out on the tarmac. My dad was born in Fort Benning, Georgia. Oh, interesting. Wow. That's crazy. But yeah, that's what I thought. I was it big it would make sense if they were out in Vietnam, like on you know Right. In that, but like just walking around the base, like who does that? Yeah, and I mean Mel never Gibson. seen that. And modern times are a little different and like DUIs and stuff like that can almost ruin someone's career like things have gotten stricter and things have gone back and forth like mel gibson <laughs> just keep bringing it back one one good beer story i have from the military which i don't think i've told here yet was when we deployed to iraq and i did air traffic patrol same thing i do now just out on deployment like very probably safer than driving on the freeway but less safe than doing air traffic at home but whatever and it was a dry country, so there was no beer on base. You couldn't drink even on your time off. We generally worked like seven twelves. We worked 12 hours on, 12 hours off, seven days a week. That's kind of what we did. Your time off, your whatever, sleeping, going to the gym. We never saw alcohol. And then credit to the colonel of, I think, the base or maybe our unit for the Marine Corps birthday, which is November 10th, he ensured that every Marine on our base got two Heineken for like, that's just whatever. That's the beer they had access to on November 10th. And of course, most of us who are whatever, we're like 21, 22, you know, slightly older for that crowd. We had a 
tactical air operations command guy who was attached to us named his name was Daniels. Young kid. He was like 17 and a half, 18. Skinny kid. Can't remember what state he was from. He was not an air traffic controller. He was actually the opposite. He was a tactical controller. And their job, theoretically, would be to take our aircraft and actually point them towards enemy aircraft and help them find each other. So my job is to separate airplanes. His was to put airplanes together, literally. So they were augmented to us in Iraq because none of these guys had ever done their job since Vietnam because we hadn't really fought an opponent An opposing air, air force like exactly so they just kind of hang out hung out with us anyways we get all our beers and we each have two beers apiece and we basically all turned in one beer to daniels because we were like what are we gonna do with two beers i'll have one <laughs> but daniels got like 11 beers and he's like all of 135 pounds God. wet and wearing boots and so you know he was able to get hammered and we were all like what am i gonna do with two beers what the <laughs> fuck is wrong with you yeah you know it was like I mean, you're not getting drunk on two beers. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's like, whatever. I'm not going to get drunk anyway. So we got Daniels nice and drunk. But anyways, that's the last time that I can remember drinking beer, you know, on duty. I'm sure it was after our shift. So question for you, Dan, not to talk about your day job too much, but you're an air traffic controller. So you might have some insight on this. How close do those helicopters normally fly? Because like to each other. I wasn't sure if this was for the shot or if this was for like, this is how like the tight formations that these fucking helicopters actually flew in, but I wouldn't put my arms out and spin around in a circle close to somebody as these helicopters were to each other. The propellers looked like cogs that were working in a well-oiled machine you know what I mean? Where it was like, okay, now you go, now I go. Like, they should have been chopping each other up. Okay, so I can only speak to this with, like, very minimal expertise because I'm not a pilot. I have friends who are helicopter pilots. Had I known we were going to get this kind of question, I could have asked them. But And I even have friends who have deployed and been in combat as helicopter pilots. But alas, I don't have them available right now. So I'll have to ask them. I was a little nervous for them. We'll, we'll have to follow up. However, in general, in air traffic, VFR helicopters, meaning flying by visual rules where it's like stay out of the clouds and avoid other planes, have way less restrictive separation standards than fixed wing airplanes for the obvious reason that they're way more maneuverable. And while a helicopter can't necessarily just like stop on a dime in midair, they still have momentum and inertia and physics they have to deal with. They are way more maneuverable. So helicopters in general, even like at San Francisco where I work, can get much closer to each other. If one's inbound, one's outbound, like we don't even have to separate them. You just give them the traffic. You're like, hey, up, traffic's 11 o'clock, two miles, helicopter 500 feet. They're like, Roger, we got them. Like they don't really care. It's whatever. They're going slower. In combat operations where they're flying as a flight, I'm sure that those pilots have a standard by which they are judging how close they are to the other helicopter. And I would imagine that at a very bare minimum, the standard is probably, you know, three times the diameter of the rotor blades, for example, or something like that. 
but I would be willing to guess that for the most part, the pilots are using a, are using a visual standard to know what distance they are away from each other exactly for that reason, because you don't want to be maneuvering or let's say one of them starts getting shot, like they're flying in a formation and one of them starts catching fire. I imagine that they have to be allowed to maneuver left or right, up or down a certain amount without having to worry about hitting one of the other, other helicopters in formation. Now, they also are in communication with each other, so they're going to have a radio frequency where they can all talk to each other. And in a flight, there's going to be a flight lead. So that person is kind of in charge of where they're all going. If someone needs to split off or do something else, they're going to be communicating with the flight lead. Um, the way I've talked to airplanes and helicopters before in the military is you have a call sign, like say, uh, for example, I worked with Marine Corps helicopters, which did fly Huey. So I have some nostalgia for these planes because they're the first aircraft I ever talked to. Sorry, not planes, but helicopters. Yeah, you're going to have to fix that one in post. You're going to catch shit for that. <laughs> He's an air traffic controller. He gets to say. You can still gets- call them aircraft. You can still call a ship a boat. Yeah, you can't call them planes, but they are aircraft. The, the UH-1 Iroquois, more colloquially known as the Huey, is this Vietnam Air helicopter that is still flown today, not by the Army, but the Marine Corps and the Navy definitely fly them. They have upgraded avionics, new like engines. Now they have four rotor versions instead of two rotors. So it's interesting because from a civilian perspective, you look at it and you're like, that helicopter looks like it came straight out of Vietnam, but everything inside, all the wiring, everything's upgraded. So it's kind of like the shell looks the same but it's a modern helicopter essentially. Yeah, so when you have a flight, you would have like Stinger 65 is like the call sign of the flight and then you would have dash dash 2 dash 3 dash 4 etc. I know they only rented 8 helicopters for this film. So I think the first scenes where you're seeing them kind of at altitude and they all take turns dropping down one at a time and you see like I don't know, 20 of them or something like that. There were some CGI helicopters added for effect. Do you think? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just a couple. There was that one shot where it was just like nothing but CGI helicopters coming at the screen. And I was like, this shot blows. I fucking hate (laughs) everything about this shot. It is the stupidest. Like you have all of these real ass helicopters flying like through the you you did the you were doing the thing right you were doing the thing with the practical stuff and, and the thing you, that overall for the most part they did well like the scenes that look shitty with aircraft are the exception not the rule in this film again we're right. going but they stick out real bad. Sure, and maybe that's because the rest of them look so good. But, um, I mean, there's a Huey crash in this where I'm pretty sure they built a mock-up of a Huey and crashed the shit out of it. Like, it looks super real. All of the napalm dropping scenes are not CGI. Like, they really lit up some forest in making this film. Um, I think Some California forest. Well, we'll talk about that, too. But um, the, (laughs) the main discrepancy with the aircraft so to go back to your original question liam i'm not a hundred percent sure what method those pilots use but i'm sure they have a standard and then when it comes to dropping off troops getting into the landing zone taking off all that stuff is organized and there's always communication going on you're just not necessarily hearing any of it so what looks like a really beautifully choreographed thing which it is, it's planned. You also have ongoing radio communication between the pilots so that they're telling each other where they're at. Also crews that are on a helicopter, which usually you have two pilots as well as someone in the back. Those people are, they have a main function, like a door gunner or whatever else they're doing, the air crew, but they are constantly like when they're landing, 
if you're on the right side of the opening manning a machine it's also your job to call like clear right you know and 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 like look at where the helicopter is going for what the pilot can't see and you're communicating that on a radio headset to the pilot so there's lots of coordination and communication going on here that you can't necessarily hear in the film and that goes as well for the combat scenes when they're calling in airstrikes essentially if you think about it you've got some indirect fire elements, right? Mortars and artillery rounds. Indirect just means that you're not shooting at what you're aiming at. It's usually a parabola, right? Something's going up and then coming back down, which means that that round has a maximum ceiling. Uh, you have troop transport helicopters. You have helicopters higher up, maybe doing recon. You have fixed wing aircraft. You have like B-52s way up there doing strategic bombing runs. All of that stuff has to be separated and coordinated. So normally the way that works in aviation, generally speaking, is there are blocks of altitudes that for your platform or for your group or call center, whatever it is, that's where you have to stay. So those troop transport helicopters have to be above whatever the minimum ceiling is for, let's say, the artillery. That way, no matter where you go, you're not going to accidentally get hit by an errant artillery round and have a friendly fire incident. Same with the fixed wing aircraft. They know where the deck, quote unquote, is for the helicopters that are like, just to say a random number, let's say the helicopters are operating between 2,000 and 4,000 feet. The fixed wing aircraft above that know that. And so when you hear the radio man in one of the scenes talking about, oh, I got planes stacked, you know, every thousand feet from 7,000 to 35,000, that's what he's talking about. It's kind of overly simplified in the film, but all of this stuff is organized and there would be probably an Air Force lieutenant doing the radio calls. There's a headquarters company with like a board right? A spreadsheet keeping track of all of this stuff. Uh, and this is obviously before computers. So they're keeping track of this stuff using analog devices. But we had that as well. When I was out in Iraq and we had, you know, there are training bombing ranges on the base that we were at, but also helicopters and fighter aircraft going out to do missions. So we would have hot ranges. We would have people firing artillery, whatever. So basically the way we did it, and I'm assuming it was something similar in Vietnam, is you would take a map and take all of this airspace over the map and separate it out into a grid, right? And so you would have, you would name those grids with numbers and letters, and then each square or rectangle in that grid would be divided for us in what we called keypads. So if you picture a keypad on a telephone, one through nine, so you would have Killbox Alpha Kilo 1 1, which to the right of it was Alpha Kilo 1 2, to the left of it was Alpha Kilo 1 0, right? All this stuff is in a logical order. Within that killbox, you would have keypad 1 through 9. If a range or an operation or whatever was happening in that particular space, you would say, okay, killbox 11 Alpha is going hot from 2000 to 6000. And you would mark it hot or red or whatever. And everyone would know to not fly through that area because it was quote unquote hot. So again, that could be for a practice range. It could be for an actual operation. So I don't know exactly how they were organizing things here, but I'm assuming they would use a similar method where all this stuff is being kept track of by a headquarters element, an aviation element somewhere else. So again, what looks somewhat disorganized and like a lot of chaos is not exactly that for the people involved, if that makes sense. 
Nerd. Very nerd. <laughs> that was some crunchy ass shit. That was <laughs> Someone will appreciate it. I know they will. Uh, yeah. I mean, I appreciated it. I'm never the expert about shit. This is like one. I know. This thing. was your time to shine. <laughs> and you shone brightly. Uh, I fucking hate you guys. <laughs> hey, I, I legit liked learning this stuff. I was like, hey, this is a lot. So like this, when I said this didn't get any real awards attention, that that's true. It did get some minor awards. And one of the places, there were two spots where it won big, and that was at the sound at a, the sound award. The sound was awesome for the most part. I mean, the sound mixing on this was garbage. I'm not going to, I didn't care for it. The sound editing is great. And sound mixing is um, how they put everything together. The sound editing is the creation of, like, the sound effects and what sound is being put into the film. Mm. But, like, this is definitely one of those films that suffered from, like, very quiet dialogue and then really loud noise effects. I, I know this because I have children and I usually watch movies at night and I have to be very aware of, like, okay, too loud yeah, you just riding that volume control. Oh, God, so hard. So hard because our bedroom is upstairs. And so both kids' bedrooms are downstairs. And so they can hear it. Ugh, so whenever I have to do that, I'm like, you really, really fucked up this sound mixing. But the special effects were the or, um, the stunts were the other area where they did pretty well on this. And the stunts and the special effects in this are to a certain extent combined the napalm drops do look incredibly realistic because they did a lot of that stuff. Like when they won a lot for how many men they lit on fire. Mm -hmm. That was a big part of their success. And this was lighting folks on fire. So that one dude that uh, caught the, the shrapnel in the face, mm. that effect did not hold up. I remember thinking it was really intense in the beginning when, or in the beginning when they when they land rather. yeah and he's got like that cgi shrapnel face okay you okay. know the one where it's like burning in his flesh yeah and they have to cut his cheek off or whatever and they have to cut yeah they have to cut into it to get like the burning shrapnel out i remember seeing this in the theater and thinking that was like wow and then i watched it this time and i was like oh man that that one did not age well while, while I didn't get caught up too much on the effect of the shrapnel the guy caught, I will say that it is a realistic depiction of what's called a Willy Pete or a white phosphorus grenade. So this is essentially mm. a grenade that burns incredibly hot. And so the shrapnel yes. will burn like underwater, like whatever it hits. And so when you get the shrapnel in you, it burns and is horrible lights things on fire and is very damaging and um i don't know how much it's common to like want to cut it out but i can guarantee you that that dude probably wanted to cut it out of himself so it was at least a accurate depiction of the weapon system itself yeah no i don't mind it being included i just mean the effect itself did not hold up the way i mean it looked good in 2002 it does not look good 20 years right later. whereas the napalm and the planes and stuff because it was all mostly practical effects that all looked good and when the one guy got when the guy got napalmed and it, they had to carry him and he tried to pick him up by his legs well hang on there's a longer the story just came off one. right right i'm sure but i'm saying that i'm sure was like a practical effect mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they had which is why that still holds up right right it wasn't cgi skin coming off yeah the 
only thing that really I could criticize them on for the planes is that the napalm dropping scenes, I mean, they put the planes like fucking 10 feet off the ground, which is just insane. Like in a, in a va- like no one would ever be doing that. And it's unnecessary. Like the planes don't need to be that low to be accurate. Like you can easily be at several hundred feet and drop a bomb or napalm or whatever it is accurately. That was just for effect for the film. Cause you're literally like looking at this Valley right in front of you and a plane just swoops like right on top of the camera. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like these guys are like a man's height off the ground. That was a little unnecessary. It reminded me of that scene in uh, empire of the sun, the bombing run there where they're yeah. like bouncing things on the, the, yes. the tarmac. True. There. Well, and if nothing else, the fact that they were that low made me question. I was like, okay, so, Aside from the fact that the f- that them being low is unrealistic, but I was like, how did they actually do this? Because it doesn't look like CGI. I'm like, did these planes really fly that low? Because that would be just an unnecessary risk for them to be taking. But back to the effect of the scene you're talking about, Liam, which that was a real person. That was uh, yes. PFC Jimmy Nakayama. And just like so many things in this film, that whole scene is like a mixed bag. So... This is a real soldier who really died that way. And Galloway was really the person to try and lift him up. And with tears in his eyes, you can watch him on YouTube tell the story of how this guy's legs like fell apart in his hands. And I'm not going to be more graphic than that. But it's just like that was one of the moments, especially once you realize that it's not done for effect and that really happened to somebody that really you know, puts the lead in your gut, so to speak, where you're like, wow, that's intense. I can't imagine having experienced that. And Galloway famously walked out of the theater upon release of this film, basically saying like, I lived this nightmare for like 35 years. I, I don't need to see this again. Like I can't handle it. So he, you know, he really had some very intense experiences. That being said, while the effects and some of the decisions they made were great, the screenwriting's terrible. So, you know, all these things of like, I'm glad I could die for my country and tell oh, tell God. my wife I love her. I mean, how many people die saying, tell my wife I love her? Right. At least two. And then there was a line cut out from this. Oh, God. I can't imagine. Where Madeline Stowe, Moore's wife, references that to the other wives that usually soldier the most common thing soldiers say right before they die is tell my wife i love her and they cut that because it was just a little too much that was too much <laughs> i know right i was like mm. that was a bridge too far for these fuckers <laughs> i mean i i think of the two dying lines between tell my wife i love her and i'm glad i could die for my country the latter is the most ludicrous because i think any yeah. soldier and micah made this comment as well where he was like, no soldier ever in the history of like the army has ever said. Dulce et decorum est pro patria more. I mean, now you're getting all no one. Now you're getting all Latiny, but yeah, no one ever said that, and that's not even what soldiers are fighting for for the most part, right? When you get into it, if you want to use a trope that's actually accurate, soldiers and Marines, infantrymen on the ground, fight for the person next to them. That's like an actual truth that has held true through combat for probably hundreds, if not thousands of years, where even as a Spartan, you can believe in the philosophy of your nation, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes down to facing imminent death and being forced to kill someone else so that they can't kill you, you're doing it 
so that you can survive the situation and you're helping your friend survive the situation so that he can do the same thing for you. Like that's the most common thing. But to be hearing people make have patriotic lines like that as their last lines is just completely ludicrous, I think. And it, it's weird because that was kind of one of the points of this film. Like they bring it up more than once that these men are fighting when we go into battle, we are fighting for each other. And, you know, Mel Gibson makes that speech about how, you know, regardless of your race, religion or creed, like we're all brothers in this together type of thing. And that when we get out there, you are relying on your on your fellows. And that's who you have to put your faith and trust in. And it's weird that they try to explore that, but then they don't use all of the options to do so by putting in that line. It just feels so trite. And in a film like this, that's so violent and gory and tries to have some level of realism, which that's what I think the film is trying to do. Not Mm -hmm. what I say it does. Um, It's trying to have some level of realism in that regard. And it just, fails miserably when it makes those choices. Right. I, again, picture a Randall Wallace in a golden bathtub with a cigar, like writing down notes and masturbating drunk, and furiously, like, <laughs> masturbating with one hand, smoking Weird. a cigar with another hand and then writing with the other hand and, 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 go on, and just be like, I want to know where that third hand is just from. so proud of himself that he's writing out this dialogue. It's a sentient penis. I said, I didn't want to know just scribbling. <laughs> And and I don't know. I, I could tell you one fucking thing. Captain Dale Die was not the military advisor on this film because there is a lot of shit that he would not have let fly on this set. So real yeah. quick, I have a, beforehand, I have a one question because Katie, you brought it up. The speech that he gives is that like a verbatim Hal Moore speech, or is that a Randall Wallace? Which one in the hangar? Yeah, before they fly away. Yeah, before the, the the one where he's like, no matter you know, we're we're f- going to where home, what home ought to be. My favorite <laughs> line was that he said, "One of you is is from the Ukraine, but we're all Americans here." It's like, but you just said he's from the Ukraine. What? So, but but that that speech was. Does any do we know if that was? I have no idea. I don't unmentioned. They shall take our lives, but they shall never take our freedom. It was not. I was like, man, this is the biggest fucking downer pep talk. And it just doesn't feel accurate no. to to that era. It didn't feel good. Like, there's, there's still a lot of segregation at that point. And, uh, well, the film really tries to brush that under the rug. Um, it was definitely going on. What they talk about it right in the live scene. But they... <laughs> They try to pretend that there isn't that aspect of it going on. And I'm sure that in the military there was certainly because there there was in America, there was still a certain amount of segregation and racism going on. And it felt uh, anachronistic for him to bring all of those things up. And I could be wrong, but that's just what it felt to me. Do we get to give Randall Wallace like a Scottish get out of jail free card because he's trying to interpret like American racial tension in the 1960s? And so maybe it's like, no, don't do it. No, no, you just don't do it. Right. This is so 
You got to write about it. Do some damn research. We actually had this conversation on Fright Pub because when we talked about Candyman, the uh, the creative team behind the original Candyman was British, and they were doing a horror movie about how scary it is to be a white lady in the projects in Chicago, essentially. Okay. Which is interesting. And well, like it's funny because like they, they did it the right way for the nineties. Like they gave the script to the NAACP and were like, is anything wrong with this? And the NAACP was like, no, you can have a black guy be Freddy Krueger. Like, that's fine. Why can't a black guy be the bad guy? But like, all of the movie itself, like watching it now, not in the nineties is like, Oh man, this is all about how scary it is to be a white lady in the projects in Chicago. Mm. But it's, you just, it would be really, really difficult. I feel for somebody who is white in America to not come across as tone deaf writing about, the civil rights struggle in America in the sixties or segregationism, or that is a very, very difficult tight rope to walk. Right. It's almost better for them to not cast the black woman in the wives club and then be criticized for not throwing a black family into the mix, but at least they can't be criticized in detail for like fucking that up royally. Yeah. When you're doing it as somebody who isn't even, around it in America, especially when you have such a conservative bent as Randall Wallace has, it sounds really, really, really fucking tone deaf and insultingly so. Well, and England has, Paul spent time in England, as I mentioned before, and he's told me about that racism there is very different than it is here. It is much more open and acknowledged, but not in the way we do it here where it's like, oh, that's a bad thing. It's not that they don't consider it necessarily a bad thing in England, but... Britain for the Britons, is that their bullshit? Probably. Sounds like something Eric Clapton would say. (laughs) But racism there, they do not have the context in any way, shape, or form of racism that we do here, obviously, because they've had a very different, very different experience. I think there's a critical lack of understanding that folks who grew up in that environment, which is not America or really anybody outside of America, like we have such a different position on those kinds of issues than any anywhere else that trying to make those comments is going to come off as tone deaf. And it very much does in this. That makes sense. Like if you're from a, another racial group trying to comment on some minority group's plight, you're already starting off in a tough place to be doing it accurately. When you're from another country on top of it, it's just kind of like, yep, probably should just not even attempt this. And yeah, Randall Wallace did not follow that advice. No, no. And it just makes it feel, I mean, when Forrest Gump does it better, Because in some ways, Forrest Gump kind of does it better. Not much. Not much. There's a hair difference here. But at least there's more understanding of the nuances in Forrest Gump than there is here, where it feels like it's kind of given this general, like, oh, we've addressed it. Now we can move on and everything's fine. And it's very much not because it taints everything else around it and makes it feel 
so cheap in a lot of ways. And that's emotionally, I think that speaks to a wider, my at least for me, my wider perspective on it is that so much of the emotions in this feel pretty cheap and that it is playing on very stereotypical roles. Like for me, no one but Lieutenant Colonel Moore and maybe the Sergeant Major are like developed characters. A little bit Joe Galloway, too, but... Yeah, Barry Pepper has a great war face. I mean, he does, and he uses it far too much in that really... In, in one of the worst cinematography choices ever, <laughs> where they show him making that war face <laughs> in front of all of these pictures that he took. Oh, are we going to the montage? Oh, man, I have so many comments. Can we leave that for the end since it's towards the conclusion okay. of the film? Please. We'll leave it towards the end. Let's pin that. Please come back to it. I will, because I had thoughts. Can we talk about the other montage? The telegram delivery montage? Oh, oh That's just so bad. And that's... I had a thought. <laughs> my thought was... And this is mm. one of my weird thoughts about this movie. If Madeline Stowe and... What's is that the girl from Felicity? Carrie Russell, yeah. Carrie Russell. Madeline Stowe and Carrie Russell weren't the only recognizable faces among the wives. Would that montage have clanged so horribly? If they got, I don't know, I'm just going to start pulling out names. Like if, if one of the wives was like Julia Roberts and one was Cameron Diaz and like, like, but people who like, you knew. And so even without having a real name or character to associate with it, it was a face that you recognized. This just looked like a bunch of, it looked like a catalog model. It was just like. A bunch of very pretty white women gazing at the camera a little tearfully and confused. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just one right after another after another. And I'm like, I don't know who the fuck these people are. I don't (laughs) Don't give a shit. I don't think it would have made a difference, Liam, to answer your question. You replaced all 12 faces with famous actors. Oh, look, one owner rider looks sad. That would have meant something more to me than that lady looking sad. Right. But then seven famous faces later, you would still have this feeling of like, why is this scene still going on and why are they laying it on so thick? Which is kind of how I felt in every single scene in this movie where they were trying to compel an emotion out of you is that it was at least twice as long as it needed to be. I'm like, oh, we're doing this again? Or, oh, am am I still in this? Like, I turned around and did something, and I'm going to come back, and it's still this montage. Like, everything is just extended forever to this painful place, is how I feel. Were Were there superimposed American flags waving, or was that just in my brain that I saw that? I think there might have been, actually. Yeah, there was a flag somewhere in there. There's also the moment with the Vietnamese general at the end who, like, looks at the American flag and then puts it back down and, like, pats it or whatever. I was like, what are you, what? What are you doing? Why is that flag there in the first place? And what the hell is he doing with it? Yeah, who brought a mini American flag to stick in the broken tree? So, Lieutenant Colonel Nguyen Huan was an actual guy, like all the other people in this. And Lieutenant Colonel Moore and uh, Joe Galloway long after the Vietnam War when they were writing the book that this is based on, the two of them went to Vietnam and met him. 
and talked to him and asked him, you know, what was your perspective? What was this like for you? So that they could write the book accurately from that side as well. And it definitely, it's it's so poorly done, I think, the inclusion of that. And I can tell that they really wanted to give this guy some real perspective, but they just, they just don't. In the book or in the movie or both? In the movie. In bo- I haven't read the book. I can't speak to the book. Maybe the book is fabulous. I doubt it. But when they came back from that, Lieutenant Colonel Moore said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he and the Lieutenant Colonel both agreed that they had no enmity or ill will towards each other. And that they both respected the other person as a great leader and a good commander and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that is what that scene is supposed to be portraying is that, you know, this guy has respect for his counterpart in the enemy. But it comes off as so goddamn tone deaf and it really contributes to the feelings that some of those British reviews talked about of that it feels very tokenistic, even though I think... I think that generally they were really trying to portray this from the North Vietnamese perspective with respect and in the interest of showing these people as as people as opposed to just enemy soldiers that can be mowed down. Mm -hmm. I think the film and I know at least from what I read about the book, that was the case is that they wanted to portray this from both sides in a certain way. So I think that's what they were going for with that scene with the little flag is to show that this guy had respect for Mel Gibson's character, but it just does not work and feels very hollow and trite. I also think they were they were alluding a little bit to the the fact that the U.S. was going to lose the war, I felt like, meaning that mm. that general... Mm-hmm. Because I remember him saying something like, I'll, you know, the Americans are going to think that they won this battle. Yes. And I don't think yep, he says yep. much more about it. But to me, the illusion was, let them think that. And again, tactically, if they had a 10 to 1 kill ratio, like, sure, the Americans did win that battle. But it's almost like the general was trying to say, they're going to lose this war. Like, they're not going to be able to keep this up. Well, and the film acknowledges that when all of the reporters come in, and are talking to Mel Gibson. And, oh, how does it feel to win? And Mel Gibson's Lieutenant Colonel Moore just turns around and walks away. Like, the film is acknowledging that, I think, from the military perspective of the boots on the ground, both of those men know the reality of what happened, but that history and maybe upper levels of command and the press and that kind of thing from an outsider perspective you could think that americans won the war because of the body count whereas both of these men know the reality of what actually happened in what these men called the valley of death the film at some points really tries trying to do something because the other thing i read about this is that randall wallace read some interview with Lieutenant Colonel Moore, who is, from what I read, very conservative and has uh, been very open about his disagreement with most Vietnam War films because he feels it portrays American service members poorly and as a, a neg- in a negative light. And he wanted a Lieutenant Colonel Moore, that is, wanted a Vietnam War film that portrayed uh, the soldiers in the way that he saw them. 
And so Randall Wallace had read that and said, well, I'm going to make that movie. And that's what we get with We Were Soldiers. It's like, I got you, bro. Exactly. And I think it tries. And at some points, it like kind of succeeds in spite of itself. But it fails so, so often that those points get utterly lost because if you're going to make that kind of nuanced point of it's about these two men who understand the reality and all of that stuff, you have to also have nuance in the rest of the film. You can't just have these few points in there where you're trying to be poignant. Yeah, you have to make it an entire piece instead of just moments. The whole movie is supposed to be poignant. Uh, yeah, but it fails miserably <laughs> at that. But like, that's what I, that's the good part of it that I tried to take away is that like, I think this movie really wants to honor these men, but it just kind of doesn't know how, doesn't know how to do it in a way that is realistic and meaningful. It relies too much on tropes and, previous films before it and ends up falling apart. We're going to move to our conclusion here in a second, but I will be remiss if I didn't highlight the recurring points that Micah brought up about when they screwed up in these scenes, because again, some of them come up often. There's lots of like, stupid why would you salute in that situation or at the end when he like requests permission from the uh from the lieutenant colonel to rejoin the ranks it's like why would you request permission for that that that's your job you would just go do you would just go get back in your foxhole or whatever it's like asking your boss to come back to come back to work yeah there's also a recurring theme in here that gets it gets progressively more aggravated as Mike is doing the research <laughs> about uh, Command Sergeant Major Plumley, where basically he describes like what that guy's job would be in the army and then what it probably would have been in this battle. Like there's a point where he probably would have taken over the medical evacuation and, and all of that stuff. But all he does is hold Mel Gibson's jock the entire time and just follows him around like a puppy. And literally, as you go through Micah's notes, they progressively like, does this guy work? He has a job. Does he not know what his job is? And then by the end of it, he's like, he should just donate his salary to Lieutenant Colonel Moore because he ain't doing shit in this movie other than like saying a quip every once in a while. He's shooting Vietnamese people with his pistol. Right. Because he doesn't trust the M16. And if he needs one, there'll be plenty laying around by that time. Another thing Micah called out is inaccurate because he said, you know, that his job is to set the example for the rest of the troops. So whatever they're deploying with, that's what he would have deployed with, too. He's not just going to turn down the M16 because he doesn't feel like it. Like, he's supposed to promote good order and discipline. And he wouldn't have just been turning things down because that's how he felt. Did they get on the buses with all of that? With their, is that a normal thing? Like you see them like waiting for the buses and they have their duffel bags and everything like their gear. Mm -hmm. And then by the time the buses are like, by the time everybody's there and they're getting on the buses, they're carrying their M 16s on their backs and things like that. It was like, where are you? You're going from home to ostensibly like a plane or a boat or something. Would they have all that stuff on their backs at that time? 
So you are going to get issued a rifle in this case as an enlisted man. You would have an M16. The officers would have pistols and I guess in this case also M16s. They probably carry both. You're going to get issued those from the armory at your home base and that serial number is attached to you and you're going to carry that thing onto a commercial flight all the way to wherever in Southeast Asia they land to until they get onto a military flight. Like we, for example, when we went to Iraq, we flew from California to Maine and then from Maine on an L-1011 all the way to Europe and then to Kuwait and then to Iraq. And yeah, we boarded an L-1011, which is an old tri-engine passenger jet, like with M-16s and everything. We didn't have ammo, but we had our weapons. Okay. Uh, They just looked really heavily armored for us. Like, aren't you guys like still on base? You just left your house in the middle of the night. It depends on the logistics. It's possible that you would be issuing rifles over there, but even the rifles that are over there would have had to gotten shipped over there at some point. So I don't think that it's necessarily unrealistic, but yeah, in terms of whether they're accurate, there's so many inaccuracies here that who knows, because again, had they hired captain die to do the military training and stuff, you wouldn't have seen things like Mel Gibson switching his rifle to full auto. Like while he's on the helicopter, like that's not going to happen. You're going to keep that on safe until you're actually in combat. Is it normal to stand on, like, the running boards of the helicopter while the helicopter is flying around? Because I saw them do that several times. I was like, Those are called the skids. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure what the standard is there. <laughs> I felt like that was incredibly dangerous, unnecessarily. I can tell you that just like everything else that they seem to lather on just multiple times in a row here the scenes where you see like three of them stand up in the grass and get shot in the chest in a row it's like dude after the first one like first of all why are you standing up in like a tactical situation and why would you do it three times in a row i noticed that i was like these guys gotta learn faster i feel like if we took liam to a combat zone that's the one thing he would not do is just stand up like a moron in the middle of everything i would do it and i'm like the least aware person in those kinds of situations. Yeah. So there's just a lot of things that just really, really clash there. Not the least of which, which I, I know we were going to get to earlier, but it's like this is filmed in California and Georgia. And goddamn, okay, I know we're in the highlands of Vietnam and not everything in Vietnam looks like a rainforest, but I had to look this up because. Not for a second did I ever feel like this wasn't filmed in Central California. You have the dry yellow grass and oak trees everywhere. And I was like, uh, this doesn't look like Vietnam for a goddamn second. I haven't been there, but. No. And uh, so there's a scene where one of the characters goes and hides in like a giant oak tree. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Are there oak trees in Vietnam? So I. I went down a Google rabbit hole. There are oak trees in Vietnam. They do exist, but not like that. And they have a very specific species. I don't know. I'm not a biology person. Uh, They have a very specific type of oak trees that exist in Vietnam. And they are so rare that scientists go on excursions to find them and finding an example of an oak tree in Vietnam because they're, and and from the pictures, they're gorgeous. Mm -hmm. They're these beautiful twisted trees that look like something out of a Ridley Scott fantasy world. No joke. But they're not littering the landscape. No. And yes, that Ridley (laughs) Scott reference was exclusively for Dan. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
I saw that and I was like, okay, but if you found an oak tree that big in Vietnam, it would be like a huge deal. Yeah. The landscape just seemed all wrong the entire time. And, that, and it kept throwing and me out. painful. And yet Stanley Kubrick managed to recreate Vietnam in his backyard with more success. I have to say, the last Vietnam movie we watched was Full Metal Jacket. And it's a very different movie than this. And from a in completely different time and a director that's as good, you know, far opposite on the spectrum as we can get from Randall Wallace, but it was a stark contrast how opposed these two film those two films are. In so many ways. The realism, like you never doubt that they're in Vietnam in Full Metal Jacket. It doesn't feel like a fucking Star Trek episode. Because right. like I said before, there are points in this where it feels like they're really trying to make a statement, but they don't follow through on so much of it that it just becomes this utter disappointment. Yeah, I never believed that I was in Vietnam for a single minute of this movie, which is not a good thing. Except in like some of the napalm shots where they're using those beautiful mountain backdrops. Those points were the only time when I was like, okay, I can kind of buy this. In the tunnel, I could buy that they were in Vietnam. Yeah, once, once the flames took over 90% of the screen... Then I was like, sure, that could be Vietnam. Yeah. Because <laughs> Vietnam looks like napalm in my mind. I don't know. Now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, what do you got for us? I think the objective of this film is really to honor the people who are in it, who are in the, the initial dirt if you will in vietnam who touched down their boots real close to the beginning of this war and try to give them some semblance of respect and reverence that i think the people who made this film felt they they hadn't necessarily been given which i think is very honorable like i think that is a a, a good thing to do, not a good reason to make a movie. <laughs> That's not why you make a movie. It, it doesn't make a good movie because it's, you're setting the cart before the horse almost if you decide this is what I want my movie to be about. And then you don't allow the film to grow in its own way. I think they had good intentions. I think the film, it hits it and it doesn't. It hits it and that I think... I would think that the filmmakers, and I know that um, Joe Galloway and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Moore, who both saw this movie, liked it and thought that it was a good representation. They felt honored by it, all of that stuff. On a certain level, and for a certain audience, I think this is going to hit really well. But, and this is a giant but, like a, a, a Cardi B or... <laughs> level butt that's a good butt it's a great butt if you are looking at this film from outside of that perspective it is not going to succeed and i'm definitely looking at this film from outside that perspective when i watch a film i'm not it's not about elevating these people it's about telling a story and the story that this film has to tell feels very truncated very guided and specific in a way that 
by the end totally falls apart. As I said earlier, like none of these characters, except for maybe Lieutenant Colonel Moore, have anything behind them. They all feel like paper dolls. Like, I don't know who these men are. There's no depth behind them. They have no flaws. They're all just these perfect, heroic angels. And to me, that feels like a disservice because no one, no person is a heroic angel. And to portray them as such cuts out their humanity. And I think films like Full Metal Jacket and Platoon and Apocalypse Now, you know, all of the big Vietnam films, to a certain extent, they almost revel in some points in the negative aspects of the soldiers. And I think this goes too far in the other direction in that these men were humans and they were regular people and they deserve to be full humans as opposed to ideals and, you know, like Chris Klein's character was a missionary in Africa. And I'm sure that guy was actually a missionary in Africa because so much of this is based on real people. But I'm sure that guy also had a lot of flaws. And that's OK, because, again, we're all humans. And to act like, you know, these men are all perfectly brave, selfless individuals fighting only for their country and its ideals is a real misunderstanding of the bravery that it takes to go into these situations. Ideals are a thin reed to grasp when you are being shot at by North Vietnamese. What really is going to drive you is your personal standards your morals, your devotion to, you know, the men around you, and to just act like it's this complete selfless act is, to me, doing them a disservice. And I think it would be better to portray them as the full humans they were, rather than paper-thin figures that you can hold up without any kind of edges that you can brush up against. Like you, you can make them work however you want them to because they're not real people. And that for me was the biggest attraction is that I couldn't connect to any of these people, even Lieutenant Colonel Moore, because he, he has no flaws. He's the perfect dad. He's a Roman Catholic who's totally accepting of his young child who doesn't want to say, you know, his, her Hail Mary. That kind of thing, it's it, it just feels too perfect. And therefore, it turns me off of everything. And it's like, well, you're not trying to tell a real story. You're trying to tell, a, you know, some a Grecian myth about these men. And that's not what drives me. I'm interested to know what these real men who were afraid, who fought, who killed who had to do all of these terrible things and experience all these terrible things and yet still continued on. And that's what is interesting about them. And I think this movie really lacks that understanding. So I kind of hated it. And I was sad that I hated it because I felt like, I felt like these are people who I would actually be interested in learning their real stories and the dismissal of who of the fullness of these men's character and 
let's to mention their wives. None of those women get any kind of character development. And they all had real problems and real issues. And the movie just doesn't do anybody any real favors in that regard. So I hated it. And I think I would love to see this story with all of the flaws and the gray areas and the edges, because I think that would be interesting. I would love to see this story from the men who actually went and did it rather than the smoothed down versions of them that are easy to love if you're just watching it, you know, like for jingoistic rah-rah reasons. So I was really frustrated by it more than anything else. Dan, what you got for us? Yeah, I got most of my thoughts out. I'll be quick. I think Katie really hit it on the head here. It's like, um, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Oh, perfection. Hold that in your back pocket for parenting. Right. When you have a kid and they're like 15, that's what you pull out. Randall Wallace, I'm just disappointed. Because there is a story (laughs) to tell here. There are real people who went through this. There are people who won medals for bravery and died. But I think Katie really, really nailed it when she said that she didn't see any fear or anyone having any moment of doubt, even in combat. And I'm like, I didn't even think about that until you said that. But I was like, yeah, where is the moment of someone overcoming their fear to do like the right thing or what you were trained to do in combat? I don't think there's any moment like that in this entire film, which is probably a rarity for a war film. Right. Even Joe Galloway, who isn't trained as a, as a, as a military person at this point, is just this brave soldier. And that's fine. Maybe he was. I mean, maybe he was the bravest right. little journalist ever and never had a moment of hesitation. And by all means, he was he was awarded the Bronze Star as a civilian. So I'm sure he was very brave and, and et cetera. But show some humanity, I think, with the wives with the soldiers, like you said, Lieutenant Colonel Moore is the person who's most fleshed out. And even there, I don't think I caught a single flaw. To answer the questions, the objective here was to try and tell this interesting story about the first battle that the U.S. had with the North Vietnamese Army, the beginning of the Vietnam War, the first time an air element was used in this way, coordination with helicopters and fixed winning aircraft and etc., All of that is interesting. Like, this movie doesn't turn me off of reading the book someday. It's quite possible that the book does flesh some of this stuff out, and that does tell you more about the characters, as I've seen other times when I've seen adaptations of books that were poorly done. So the goal wasn't necessarily a bad goal or the wrong goal here. The problem here isn't that this movie doesn't try. It's that it tries too hard in every single scene from the score to the montages i mean there's we didn't get to it but there's the montage at the end with barry pepper where you're seeing all the shots of the soldiers black white i mean for one thing the montage is super cheesy and way too long just like every other scene in this film the other thing which galloway himself was disappointed in is they use stills from the production instead of using actual photos from the platoon showing like the real guys who were in this story like that was a perfect opportunity it's not like you can make it too cheesy you've already made this cheese fest you might as well do the montage of like oh let's see what the real soldiers involved in this looked like or even let's do the you know you show the text at the bottom and you say 
you know, private first class Nakayama, you know, age 22, silver star and, and et cetera, et cetera. I could be off about the award there. I was just throwing one out there, but it's like, they just, they're going for these lofty goals and then they're just dumping the paint on the walls from the score to the screenplay, the dialogue. It's just so schlocky that it takes me out of it every single time. I mean, we talked about the scenes, the, you know, the civil rights related scene where I was just like, you can address the civil rights context of America during this time and not do it like that. First Man, which is one of my favorite films ever, does a great job of showing some protests at home and kind of showing what was going on at the time. And you don't have to turn it into this. These people are all caricatures, right? Like, that's what I really didn't get. There's a good story to tell here, but it could have been told so much better. And Micah made this point in his research, too, in complaining about the really stupid, tropey line of, like, I'm glad I could die for my country. And even Micah said... These men are all being depicted as like these perfect, you know, patriotic heroes. And he's like, infantry guys are just regular people like anybody else. And I think that just, they're just regular people line is what rang true to me when I was feeling what I was missing from the film. It was echoing what Katie just said about it. And that was the main problem, I think, is nobody felt real. They, I, they missed the mark so hard and it's just disappointing because again you you could have done something good here and i felt like it was terrible instead i got one thing in front of me i really liked a scene with the radio chatter where somehow they tied into like actual radio chatter from some really scared dudes on the ground in vietnam when they were training in georgia i have no idea what the accuracy of that is but that was like the one scene where they tried to lay it on thick where i was like this actually works, and that's kind of cool. Other than that, though, I really hated this movie, and I hated that it didn't allow me to really think about these soldiers' sacrifice and more about their lives, because it really just ripped it out of my hands, and I didn't even, I couldn't even really contemplate it because I was so focused on the flaws of the film. So I am confident I'm never going to watch this again, but I might read the book. I agree, and if we read the book... We should do a show about it on the Patreon. When we start our next podcast on books. <laughs> Liam. Liam. I cannot wait to hear it. What was your favorite part of this movie, Liam? So a lot has already been said. I can sum up the problems with this movie pretty easily. First one isn't too surprising. What was the objective? The objective of this movie is that Randall Wallace is a prepubescent incel <laughs> lusting after a high school cheerleader at the lunch table from across the cafeteria, except the high school cheerleader is these veterans that died. He doesn't love them. He loves this idea that he's created in his mind about it. It's a parasocial relationship that he has with a porn star Everything that you guys said is true. Like he, he isn't interested in making these real people because he has an idea in his head that he just can't stop jacking it to. And it's really pretty nauseating and offensive. I think, you know, just saying the guy's name as he's cheesing for the camera in the middle of a firefight. I'm Jimmy Nakayama. 
then he gets lit on fire with napalm. You get a name. Joe Galloway wouldn't even shake the actor's hand because it was so affecting for him. And this is this is part of the reason why this movie sucks is that when you are depicting real soldiers dying the way they really did, you don't have to make the movie good. You just don't. Any anybody that that comes at your film with any shred of criticism you can just say, that's how it really happened, man. I mean, sure. I, yeah, I guess. Sort of. I'm, I'm so, I can't even say I'm disappointed. Because you can't be disappointed in Randall Wallace. It's actually impossible. <laughs> because if you have paid attention to anything he's done, didn't he fucking write Pearl Harbor? Oh, yeah, baby. He sure did. And so many reviews had nothing but bad comparisons to make. Like his, like his, his entire rap sheet, I'm sorry, resume reads like a crime on humanity is just piece of shit, piece of shit, piece of shit, braveheart, piece of shit, piece of shit, piece of shit. I, I just don't know how anybody gave this guy work for anything ever, let alone allowed him to helm a movie. I don't know how you're worse than Roland Emmerich, but this guy manages it. No, Roland Emmerich is way better. He's a genius in comparison, which is saying something. Way, way better. Thinking back to another film that Liam didn't really like, how much better of a film was The Outpost compared to this? Honestly. It's a similar sort of thing, though. Like, where it's like, if you... Like, the movie doesn't have to be good if it's telling a true story. And as long as you get the names right and how they died, you don't have to make them real people. It was a problem that I had with The Outpost. The Outpost was better miraculously the outpost had less literal flag waving. I don't know how you did that. Yeah. Now here's the interesting thing. Was it on target? No, but in an interesting way, (laughs) your target or the film's target, the film's target. It missed. No, it hit it, but kind of like how in the movie they just drop napalm on everything and they end up hitting their own dudes too. This really didn't, it, it couldn't decide on a thing to be. So it wanted to tell the story of the wives at home. It wanted to tell the story of the men who died. It wanted to depict the battle viscerally and realistically. It wanted to set it up as a chess game. It wanted to show it as the spooky brass versus the real guys on the ground. It wanted to show it in the through the lens of journalistic excellence. Like it, it, it tried to take so many angles, and it was so poorly equipped to do any of them properly, any at all, that it even lost focus on its original thing. Like this movie ends with a shot of the Vietnam Memorial and the actual names of the guys from the film on the Vietnam Wall, and it forgets that that's what it's about for half the movie. There is a much better movie to be made on this topic, which brings me to my hot take. I've never, ever in my life watched a movie and wished Mel Gibson had directed it instead. Oh, Oh my God. The the filmmaking in this, from the shot progression to the cinematography, to the framing, to the camera movements, like everything about the making of this movie sucks and would have been better. Like you could have had 
literally the exact same movie, the exact, like you wouldn't have had to change the script. You could have kept the same cast. You could like, obviously Mel Gibson wasn't busy. He was there for the movie. How do you not get Mel Gibson to direct this? He should have pulled a Clint Eastwood where he he makes them fire the director and takes over the production. He actually knows how to make interesting shots. Mel Gibson is a ham-fisted director. You know, he's, he's, oh my God, he could have shooed this movie up. And for comparison, put this movie against Hacksaw Ridge. Very similar in its tone and, and its intentions and its desires and its toxic nostalgia and its lack of understanding of how people actually talk and interact with one another. Like there's a, a lot of similarities to be made, but I'd argue that Hacksaw Ridge is really interesting to watch, to like look at visually and is like 10 times the movie that we were soldiers is. And I have to think that the director is a large part of that because these shots are stupid. There is a shot where all of the helicopters are taking off, kicking up this massive dust storm around like an oak tree or whatever the fuck. And the framing is like on the oak tree. So it's like you don't see the helicopters really. And you sort of see some dust getting kicked up. But there's like it's not like it was like they just left the camera on somewhere. <laughs> like it wasn't, it had no focus. There's no like mise en scène. There's nothing. There's no planning, no storyboarding. Like nobody was paying attention to making any part of this movie good. And it's a little frustrating to watch somebody just piss it away like that. You know, like this could have been a good movie without changing a whole lot about the production itself. That screenplay needed a serious eight rewrite. Yes, but, you know, you can do things with a bad screenplay. Yes. You can, like, you can make a more interesting movie than this without changing a word. And that's just, like, one change. One change. Put somebody else in the director's chair. I don't even... It's so stupid. <laughs> That's that's a good ending. Is this it? Is this the end of the show? This is the end of the show. We have reached the end. Are we are we still doing another We're one? We're not finishing <laughs> on this trash. <laughs> are we coming back two weeks from now to do another one? <laughs> Next up, we're going to be doing Seven Days in May. From 1964, John Frankenheimer directed, uh, starring Burt Lancaster as an all-star cast. It's fantastic. Uh, Burt Lancaster... Oh, yeah. Kirk Douglas, Frederick March, Ava Gardner, and written by Rod Serling. It's a very fascinating mid-60s alternate reality, very Rod Serling-esque, about an attempted military coup in the United States. Yeah, a new topic for us. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit of an Elseworld kind of feel to it. And oddly enough... And we were soldiers. We saw Fort Benning, Georgia, where my where my dad was born. A lot of this was filmed around uh, Fort Myers, where uh, in Washington D.C., where my dad grew up. So it's cool. uh, they he remembers them filming this. My grandparents got to go to the premiere. Oh, cool! 
That's going to be a good one. Looking forward to it. Me too. Thanks everyone for joining us. If you want to get in on the conversation, we've got lots of good posts on weapons and aircraft. All the contributors throw stuff on there. I'll put our surplus ordinance on there, especially for this one. I've got, again, 30 pages of stuff. And you can go to Facebook and look up our Danger Close podcast discussion group on there and join us. We're also on Twitter and Instagram and Reddit and all of the places. If you are curious about our new Patreon show, go to patreon.com forward slash Danger Close. You can look us up there. I'll have some trailers that are available there where you can get a feel for it. And we will see you guys on the next one. Bye. Bye. Morty's back. Bastard. Ah, ruining my thing.